Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Corporal Hiroshi Miyamura. Miyamura was a machine gun squad leader serving with the 2nd Battalion 7th Infantry Regiment, part of the 3rd Infantry Division during the Korean War. The time period we're going to talk about specifically is in April of 1951, but Miyamura's story covers a lot more than just that, those couple days we're going to dive into. So he is a second generation Japanese American and would volunteer for service during World War II. That was an interesting time for a Japanese American to want to serve their country. And it says a lot. At you know, being at war with, with Japan, the United States struggled, and I think in retrospect, we can safely say we didn't take the best actions with how to how do you handle first or second generation citizens that still have family or may still have family or contacts or relationships, whatever it might be, with the country that you're at war with. And at the time, that was viewed as a top-level national security issue. I mean, there were, were real, real concerns of sabotage and spying within the United States. We can look back now and say that, I mean, I'm not sure of any cases that have been brought to light where that was actually the case. Um, but I can understand the concern. I just don't know that we handled it well. And one of the ways we handled that was standing up things known as internment camps, which was forced relocation. Um, I mean, in the nicest way possible, we'll call it forced relocation uh, of these American citizens, just first or second generation Japanese Americans, but they're American citizens, and forcing them to abandon their homes, their jobs, their businesses. Some cases they were allowed to sell the businesses, but you can, you can imagine how that went when um, you have five days, 20 days to sell everything. Um, you don't know if you're ever going to come back to that area. Um, it's not as though they were able to um, maybe get the value of that business and the value of their hard work. So not a proud time for the United States in how we worked with um, this group of Americans. But one thing we did do was segregate Japanese American soldiers into specific units. There were a lot of segregated units in World War II. And one of them was the 442nd Infantry Regiment or Regimental Combat Team, I think is how it was referred to. And that was a predominantly Japanese American unit that went on to see substantial combat in the Italian theater. And it, it might be still the most decorated unit of that war. I mean, they were getting after it for a long time during the second world war. That is the unit that my Miyamura is, is assigned to, and he's heading to Italy to join them when the war stops. So before he lands in Italy, the war has, has stopped in the European theater. Now the year, the war in the European theater ends eight or nine months before it does in the Pacific theater. So there's going to be a relocation of troops. Um, you know, we don't need all these men in Europe. Hitler has surrendered. Hitler's dead. Um, but we still have the Japanese empire that we're fighting. So there's the beginnings of moving troops to that, um, 
that continuing theater of operations, but before this unit takes place, before Miyamura gets there, or even maybe begins movement, the war ends. So his service in World War II is not in a combat theater necessarily. But he gets home and is in the reserves for a period of time and has the option to get out but re-enlists. And as we know, in June of 1950, just a few short years later, the Korean War kicks off. Now, the Korean War is a, gosh, I mean, I guess we're going to call it a civil war at its core, but it wasn't a civil war really for very long. When I think civil war, I think of of its, its being fought within a, you know, think of the United States Civil War where it's really fought within one country and there might be external help provided, but not necessarily external troops on the ground, external from other countries. Um, and I know the Korean War was not really like that because it started as a civil war in June of 1950 when North Korean troops moved across the 38th parallel into South Korea in an effort to create a unified Korea, which doesn't sound like a bad thing. And even today, when we talk about what the future looks like on the Korean peninsula, there's a lot of people that are very, very interested in a unified Korea. The problem that different parties around the world had is what does that unified Korea look like? A unified Korea is great for the United States and for the United Nations if it's a generally democratic, Western-leaning country. But North Korea is the one starting this conflict, and their goals are not aligned with the United States, are not aligned with the United Nations, and may not align with much of South Korea at that time, or even today, I should just say, with South Korea. North Korea is backed, supported, and aligns ideologically, militarily, politically with the Soviet Union and their next door neighbor, China. North Korea shares a border with China, which is going to be important in this conflict. So sure, maybe it starts as a civil war, um, but in the days, I mean, within hours almost of this invasion kicking off, the United Nations is going to start talking about sending troops to intervene. Now, the United Nations was just recently stood up. It was the idea of if we have this international body, maybe we can reduce um, the likelihood of major conflicts like World War II that we just got out of from happening again. So the United Nations is going to be tested in 1950. We're going to put troops in South Korea. We're going to stop this aggressive action from North Korea coming in and trying to, by force, unify the Korean Peninsula. Now, the Korean Peninsula is divided because of a conflict, because of World War II. We split it like we did a lot of areas, cities, countries around the world after the Second World War. Part of it went to um, the Soviet Union to to monitor and to govern. Another part went to, um, we'll say, generally the Western countries of the the allied nations, France, United States, Great Britain, Canada, um, Australia. And that that's what begins with North and South Korea and why there's a, a split there in the first place. But nonetheless, in June, uh, North Korea invades and starts sees pretty um, pretty serious success very early on in the campaign. And the United States gets troops on the peninsula before too long with the United Nations. Um, and there's a, a whole host of countries involved in trying to stop this attack. Now, the first few months of the Korean War, you know, the United States is just 
and, and many of the allies in the United Nations are just off of this incredible showing in the Second World War, you know, the most powerful militaries in the world. But right after 1945, we really, we really stopped innovation on a lot of fronts, slowed innovation maybe is a better way to say it. We reduced the size of our force. We weren't really in wartime shape. And it showed in 1950 because when we put troops on that peninsula, they didn't fare very well right out the gate. Now, that's not that the individual troops weren't ready or that the fighting spirit of the United Nations soldiers or the U.S. soldiers and Marines weren't up to the task. It's all sorts of things like the logistics system isn't what it could be. Our air ground coordination for strikes isn't what it could be. Our, all, all sorts of different things. Our, our tanks might not measure up to the tanks that are coming across the border. Any number of things line up for this to not be a great showing right out the gate. And before too long, the United States is pushed back to the Pusan perimeter and they're at the, the verge of being pushed out of the peninsula entirely. And to kind of fast forward on the next few months, MacArthur conducts a landing at Incheon around the back of the North Korean forces. They, it's just more than they can handle. Um, North Korea had a pretty good chance of winning a war against South Korea. North Korea does not have a good chance of winning a war against the United Nations or the United States. We're just talking about different sizes, militaries, different capabilities at this time. That's not, it is no longer a fair fight, which is what the United Nations want, right? We don't want to enter into a fair fight. We want to overwhelm and destroy the enemy. So after the battle at Inchon or after the landings at Inchon, the United Nations starts pushing north. Now, there's a lot of differing goals and objectives during this conflict, which makes it challenging and they're, they're competing. So we have this boundary at the 38th parallel. And there's some people that say, just push North Korea past that. Let's reestablish that parallel. That's not what happens after the landings at Inchon. And in the fall of uh, 1950, MacArthur is going to push, and the United Nations forces are going to push past the 38th parallel into North Korea. Now, North Korea shares a border with China, and this all of a sudden changes the course of the war. Because now China sees not just a, not North Korea on their border, but a, the potential for a United Nations allied South Korea. The, you know, essentially it's the roles reversed. For, for a few months there, it looked like we were going to have this unified Korea that aligned very closely with China. And you blink, and now it looks like you might have a unified Korea aligned with the United Nations. It's the opposite of what China was hoping would happen. And that fall, China would commit their own forces under the name of the People's Volunteer Army. So it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek. Uh, they're not Chinese forces, but they're all Chinese, and they're trained and equipped by China. But the Chinese government doesn't actually have control over them, but they did. It was a way for China to not um, necessarily include their country in the war, but still provide material support. It was a nice, it was one of the early super gray areas of the Cold War. So um, China's kind of setting the stage for how the Cold War would be played out there. But in another sense, the United States going into China head on is not something we want to see. You're the United Nations into China. So we kind of fight this fringe battle that's not quite superpower against superpower, but also kind of is. It's a nice and confusing time in, in, in military history. Nonetheless, after China enters the war, we once again completely change the conflict. And with China coming in with their massive industry and manpower 
they start to not just stop the United Nations forces, but push them back. And next thing you know, the U.S. and the United Nations are back down fighting for Seoul in South Korea and and kind of wishing maybe we'd stopped at that 38th parallel um, because we're starting to lose more and more territory. And what ends up happening as China kind of counterattacks South is we, we enter into what will become about a two-year stalemate where it's just going to be kind of a back and forth. Neither side will give a whole heck of a lot, but there's going to be a lot of people killed in the process. That time period brings us into something known as the Battle of the Imjin River, and that's going to take place in April of 1951. So remember, the U.S. and the United Nations have pushed north. In the fall, the Chinese attacked and started to slowly push the United Nations back until they've established, continually establishing these lines as they move back. And in April, something is going to start that's known as the Fifth Phase Offensive. The fifth phase offensive is a Chinese offensive designed, Chinese and North Korean offensive designed to end the war or take Seoul, I think was the the phrase, take Seoul by May. And remember, we've talked about this before. Anytime you hear a military commander offer up something by a certain date, you know you're in for trouble. It was in November of 1950 that the, the United Nations launched something known as the Home by Christmas offensive in 1950. This was before the Chinese entered the war. Now it's, we're past Christmas into April. And now the Chinese and North Koreans are launching something known as the fifth phase offensive designed to um, completely repel, completely push out the United Nations forces from the peninsula, but take Seoul by May, right? And and of course, like is the case in so many times throughout military history, that always ends up uh, not not working out well, but the battle of the Imjin river is going to be the first phase of this. And it's a pretty substantial fight between a lot of allied countries, United nations countries, not necessarily the United States in phase one, you're going to have Korean troops, South Korean troops, British, Belgian, and Luxembourg troops that take kind of the brunt of the fighting during this assault. But in retrospect, because those troops, those UN troops held out as long as they did and inflicted the casualties that they did, the overall fifth phase offensive didn't pan out as expected. But this overwhelming attack causes those UN troops to fall back into kind of a next series of lines that are held by the Americans. And in one case, held by the 3rd Infantry Division, specifically the 2nd Battalion, 7th Regiment, of which Corporal Hiroshi Miyamura is a machine gun squad leader holding this position. They take the brunt of a pretty serious enemy attack. And at, and before long, the enemy is inside the wire and Miyamura has to fix his bayonet and ends up killing at least 10 North Korean or Chinese soldiers working his way to their first machine gun position. He gets to that first position and um, finds some of his soldiers are killed and wounded. So they, they took pretty heavy casualties in the first wave. He helps bandage some of these guys up, coordinates the evacuation, and starts moving them and helps a couple of them move to the rear for treatment just as the second wave attack kicks off. Now, as the second wave attack is kicking off, he mans the machine gun and stays at that position, kicking his other guys out of there, saying, I got this, I'm going to hold the line. Holds that position until he runs out of ammunition at which point it looks like he's going to be overrun. So he destroys the machine gun so it can't fall into enemy hands and moves, again, fighting through 
Chinese and North Korean troops. It's not like he just got up and ran. They are so far inside the wire now that that he has to fight his way to his other machine gun position. Remember squad leaders, who's going to be in charge of a couple. Gets to that second position, helps with getting it up and running. Again, we're kind of seeing lulls in the attack as they, they pick up and slow down, pick up and slow down. Helps get this other machine gun up and running. And then the order comes to withdraw. So kind of a... We see this often in the Korean War where there's going to be, you know, you push forward, then you pull back. You push forward, then you you, you pull back. It, it's it's a pretty consistent theme throughout the conflict, which is why we're talking about this large window that is largely going to be referred to as a stalemate. Anyways, Miyamura's unit gets the uh, notification to withdraw. Instead, he he orders his men to get out of there, and he's going to stay at his position because of the rear guard action that's needed. So his guys don't get slaughtered as they try to run away. Run away is not the right way to say it. They're moving back to the next defensive position so they can fight to hold another day, hold another ridge line, and, and tie in with American forces. Run away is not, not the right way to phrase that. But if they all just get up and leave, the enemy can overwhelm them, swarm them, fire into them, fire into their backs as they're moving. So Miyamura stays the machine gun and continues firing until he is seriously wounded and runs out of ammunition and moves into a nearby bunker, covered bunker system. Now, at this point, the machine gun position that he was manning has more than 50 dead North Korean and Chinese soldiers surrounding them. So he held off, killed more than 50 enemy soldiers while his men evacuated. That action allowed a lot of his guys and a lot of his unit to survive and to go on to fight another day. But he doesn't know that because now he's stuck in this position and he doesn't know if he's going to be able to get back to friendly lines. He tries he's seriously wounded tries to now the hillside is surrounded by Chinese and Korean soldiers. He was the last holdout on this hillside. So now that he's dead, they think there's not, um, they've moved through the hill. They've moved over the hill. They're continuing their advance, but he's essentially behind enemy lines now. So how is he going to get back to his guys? How is he going to get back to friendly forces as he's behind enemy lines and seriously wounded? So he's trying to do that, ends up in a few more little, hand not little, I shouldn't say that, a few more engagements in hand-to-hand combat. Eventually, the the just the, the number of, the volume of enemy troops around him is overwhelming and he lies down in the ditch, lies, pretends to be dead. He tricks a few people, but... Not everybody. And eventually is discovered and marched off to a prisoner of war camp. Now, for his actions that day, on 24 and 25 April 1951, Corporal Hiroshi Miyamura would be submitted and approved for the Medal of Honor. But he's in a prisoner of war camp in North Korea. And there's a concern. The amount of damage that he inflicted on the North Korean and Chinese troops can't be made public. If the North Koreans learn about that and find out that they have this guy in captivity, he might not make it home. So rather than, and you know, in, in, in many of these conflicts, we see these medals announced quickly, right? We want a hero. We want somebody to root for. We want, you know, as much as we can, good news during these wars. This is not going to be one of those cases. And I think in retro, I think looking back was the, was the, the right move. Instead of announcing this honor, announcing this award, 
Miyamura, who for a period of time, it's unknown, of course, that he's captured. It's not always known that somebody's actually been captured versus killed versus um, missing. His award is listed as top secret. It's classified as top secret and information is not put out. Now, one of the challenges for his family and for his men and for anybody that cares about him is it's not as though after this battle, North Korea is going to write a detailed report and say, here are the guys we captured and hand over this list. There's some degree of communication, sort of. It'll get a little better in Vietnam, but generally speaking, his family, his loved ones aren't going to know if he was killed and now he's behind enemy lines. So they may never recover his body. If he's missing, which means we don't know, could be, could mean anything or if he's been captured. So, I mean, I guess you're rooting for captured at this point, but, but being a prisoner of war in North Korea and maybe China at times was far from a, a enjoyable experience. So it's a tough spot for his family, tough spot for his unit and a tough spot for anybody who cares about Hiroshi Miyamura. Fortunately, after 28 months in captivity, 28 months in a prisoner of war camp, he's released in August of 1953. He comes home and in October of that year would be awarded, presented, I should say, the Medal of Honor by President Eisenhower. And a few months later, would be discharged from the military. So it's an interesting deal to think about how that plays out, how he receives this award or is approved for this award, but it has to stay a secret because of what could happen. Just interesting to think about that. Not something that's very common when we dive into any of these medal of honors or distinguished service crosses or, or anything. Just that's a very unique circumstance to find yourself in where we want to recognize the service, recognize the action, but by doing so might, might put the person at risk. So Incredible story. Then Corporal Hiroshi Miyamura would end up retiring or leaving the service as a staff sergeant. Today calls New Mexico home and will be awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions during the Korean War in 1951. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.